HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American international style and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country? For more information, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, you know, for those of you who do any cooking, and I'm sure everyone out there does some cooking, the first thing you usually do is open the drawer and pull out your knife. Well, interestingly enough, knives for cooking, or at least the chef's knife as we now know it, didn't exist around 50 years ago, or even sooner than that, and we'll find out. Today, my guest is an authority on knives, the history of, the use of, uh, and uses them himself. It's Peter Hertzman from Palo Alto, California. Peter's here in the studio with me. Peter is, i got to read this, an independent author, filmmaker, blogger, website developer, cook, culinary instructor, amateur historian, an occasional butcher. <laughs> I just I think that's a wonderful description, Peter. His book, Knife Skills Illustrated, a user's manual, was published uh, by Norton in 2007 and is a, a compendium of everything you need to know about knives and also has made a fabulous video that I will give you a link to later. Uh, Norman, thank you. I, you and welcome to the show. You you said your interest is really in knives, right? You just called me Norman. I think. I'm Norman. Oh, <laughs> we were job well, before the show. We were talking about one of your um, one of your colleagues, indeed, yes. Norm Weinstein. <laughs> Peter, Peter Hertzman. Let's start over again. <laughs> Peter, thank you. Well, and you're in town. I'll mention you're in town um, to participate in the food tech conference in New York City. Um, at the Roger Smith Hotel, and you'll be presenting on a panel about knives, the history and the usage. And you said that one of your great interests is knives, among all the other things that I just read that you that you do. Um, how did you how how did you come to get so interested in the history of knives? Uh, I fell into it more or less. Um, didn't hurt myself when I fell, but Good. I, mean, <laughs> uh, I describe myself as being serially obsessive. 
<laughs> and what I mean by that is any subject I get into, I want to know not only the direct thing of how to do something, but I also want to know why. I want to know the history. I want to know all there is, all I can learn about something. And that all affects them. And so with knives, uh, for me, it started off as doing some knife skills classes, and I had my website. And in 2005, I wrote this article on doing some basic certain types of cuts. And it went viral for 18 hours on uh, the Internet, uh, you know, from a normal thing of, you know, where I'd get 1,000, you know, visitors a day. I was getting 30,000 an hour. Hmm. Altered that one article and stuff, and an agent in New York saw it and sold it to a, uh, you know, the idea to a publisher, and out of that came a book, and out of the book grew all the other stuff. Not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> Keep posting to YouTube, you guys. <laughs> um, well, because of your interest in knives, and obviously, and you use them as well for you know for your work, um, and you weren't always into food cooking and butchery, but uh, well, since I'm fourteen. Yeah, okay. Um, tell me, I'm interested, of course, in um, your statement when you said the chef's knife did not appear, was not around well, 50 years ago. So I want to know about the history of, of knives for cooking. So the, the chef's knife, or which has other names, uh, French knife, uh, cook's knife, or French cook's knife, goes back much longer than that. It's available in, it's in the 1850s. It shows up. Uh, in some of the early American cookbooks and early French cookbooks where they start putting illustrations and say what you need in the kitchen. And it begins to show up, although not by the time you get to the 1890s, it's often an afterthought. So when you look at Miss Parloa or uh, the White House cookbook or some of the other cookbooks of that era, which gave you know your battery to cuisine, the things you needed to run your kitchen, they would have butcher's knives, carving knives, uh, the office knife, the office knife, which is a paring knife, Sometimes they're called a vegetable knife, and they'd have chopping knives. And then once in a while, as an afterthought, they say, "Oh, and you may want to have a, you know, French cook's knife or something mm. like that." Uh, when you look at the catalogs of that era, uh, if I remember correctly, the Sears catalog does not have any chef's knives in it. The Montgomery Ward does have one or two. Uh, I have an 1898 Aubin catalog from France, and that shows one style of of what we'd call a cook's knife, the traditional sabatier that you seen many times I'm sure by different lengths but that's it but they have three different varieties of chopping knives um, which we at some point we need to explain to people what a chopping right, knife is right. difference. we'll get there and there, then it doesn't really show up much in, in pictures and stuff until uh, 1975 which is when Cook's catalog comes out mm-hmm. you know, James Beard and Burt Wolf and you know those people they wrote first to Cook's catalog and then did international Cook's catalog, but in that Cook's catalog, there's four chefs knives shown: uh, Victorian Knox, which is very similar to the one that you can still buy, the Rosewood handles, uh, Sabatier, and then a Hinkles. And uh, those are the four. It's three brands. Four. I forgot one of them. There's two from the same brand, uh, and that's it. Well, when I was scouting around, um, you know, before I, when I knew you were going to be on the show, and I was doing a little independent research and scouting around for. Uh, representations of what might be Cook's knives. Obviously, there are knives in museums. There weren't, as you said, there was a problem with illustrations and, and publishing mm-hmm. books weren't written, and so we didn't have illustrations or, you know, or drawings even in books um, that were widely disseminated. But, of course, there are artifacts in museums. Hard to know 
except for one Roman exhibit where they were kind of grouped together with cups and other eating utensils. But so when you find other medieval knives, it's hard to know whether these were actually used for cooking, correct? Or maybe were used for cooking and other things. Mm. Uh, it depends on whether or not the you know particular you know general you know you're talking about the average person or you're talking about you know royalty or nobility do, that would have someone cook for them is to cook a full time person. So you have uh, things like where the in France in the I believe 16th 17th century the cooks were considered part of the military. So right. the evolution of the double-breasted uh, white, you know, cook's jacket is an evolution from a uniform. Discovered uh, that you see some cooks use in, in those days was definitely, you know, an evolution from the scabbard. But what, when we use the term chef's knives or cook knives, there's one very significant difference that from all these other knives, and that is it's been designed to use on a cutting board. Hmm. So there, when you go flat against it, you have clearance for your fingers. So it's so the shape. So the shape is very important. That shape, yes. Uh, all these other old knives, when you see them, you could use a tip on a board if they, in fact, had a board. A lot of times people just use tables and mm-hmm. things like that. Which would have been a board. But <laughs> yeah, but, it, but it's not a, the separate, not the cutting, separate board. cutting board. right? Um, which is, becomes a difficult thing to research because there's a lot of old cutting boards used for other things other than cooking. Right. Or it was a knife designed to use on, like if it was for protein, it would be used against the bone. So you're using it in the air as opposed to on uh, the table. When you look, you know, in, when I've looked at a lot of old recipes, you don't see much in the way of, you know, meat that's been um, cut into strips or things like that. You will see that's been minced, and then you get into the chopping knives for that, which are some very interesting patents. Uh, but ordinarily you see what, just big joints of meat, big, so yeah. they've, they've obviously disjointed an animal with a, a big knife mm-hmm. but and that's about it yeah huh? and uh, if you look so I think it's in whether it's Mrs. Lincoln or uh, I think it was in Mrs. Lincoln where she talks about you know you, you cook this big piece of meat and then the next day you make this out of part of it this out of part of it and so you have this sort of leftover plan almost that comes from it uh, based on this big joint and when you look at uh, paintings of the period of butcher shops and stuff of uh, the late 19th century, early 20th century, read about you know sort of meals that people are preparing. It's all large cuts. Right, right. Well, tell me about you. You mentioned for people who aren't familiar with um, a true chef's knife or cook's knife, as as it's referred to. Um, Talk about that shape a little bit. You said it's it's designed so that your fingers so the, <laughs> don't the, fall under it and block it from the board. Okay, so if you think of a, a knife, there's the spine, which is the, the back part that is not sharp, and you have the cutting edge, which is sharp. So you have to have a sufficient distance from between those two in order to have finger clearance. So if you think of a carving knife or even just you know a dinner knife, there's no way you can really work flat on a board with that. You can use the tip. They're usually board. long and thin, right? Right. Uh, yeah. It's a uh, you know a slicer and, and, and see, on a slicer since it's designed not to be worked used on a board. Plus, because it's against cooked proteins, there it's the distance from the cutting edge to the spine has to be as short as possible because you want to reduce the amount of metal in contact with the cooked protein because that creates drag, mm-hmm. and it makes it you know, tougher to uh, to carve. So people, if they see these knives and you've seen them in the stores, you've seen them 
probably in your drawer at home in the kitchen. Um, it's the more almost like triangular-looking mm-hmm. blade at the bottom, right? The thick one the, the, and the 10-inch. Well, there's that proverbial question, you know, 10-inch or the 6-inch or, you know, and and as you have mentioned in your video and other places, you're always asked, if you had only one knife. Okay, Peter, if you had only one knife. <laughs> it's a chef's knife. I mean, it's the it 10 is, inch, the 10 inch actual. I, I, I prefer a 10 inch because when you look at the actual cutting edge and you, if you look the front half of that as a greater curve than the back half, and depending on which style you're getting of the Japanese versus the Western and then, some of the more modern ones, they put a lot of what's called billy, so a lot of curve in the bottom, which I don't particularly prefer. But you almost have two knives to work with if you divide that blade now in half. Hmm. So depending on what you're doing, you may use the whole blade, like if I want to cut things like you know zucchini or something like that, lengthwise in half, I want a nice straight cut, then having a knife-long knife makes that much easier. But there's other things like uh, you know thinly slicing uh, green onions or something like that, which is only done with the heel of the knife. But then you want that nice and straight. And there's other things like you're going to strip off the, the leaves from the stalks and, and chard or kale. There you're going to use more of the tip of the knife, and you need that round edge. does a better job of that. So that one knife is a multi-purpose knife mm-hmm. altogether. And it's a shame on radio. We can't see that great rocking motion of the knife or, you know, or, or the shape. But go they, the can go, they can go to your video. We'll, <laughs> as I say, we'll have a link to that later. Um, and... In talking about the the origin of a lot of these knives and how they came to be, um, there it's like sort of the East versus the West, as you've just referred to recently. So who were the who were the major knife makers, and where did that shape and that knife come from? Well, you have uh, within the individual countries. So you have you know in Germany you have a, a knife area around Solingen, I think is the, the biggest one. Although nowadays it's in other places. Uh, in Tier in uh, France was their center of knife making. But remember, most of the knives that were being made were not being made for cooking. They were being made for uh, agricultural use, for hunting, for military. And most of these knife manufacturers did more than just cooking knives. Well, and they had to yeah. harness the metals to to well, melt them to it, make the knives. So, where, you know, where do we go back to the Iron Age? No, but we... <laughs> well, but when you think of the, there is, if you look at the year 1855 as a dividing point, so with, which is where Henry Bessemer comes up with the Bessemer, you know, blast furnace. And you have, because they did have steel before that, but that really made, you know, the, the modern production of steel possible. Right. And you go like in, in kitchen gadgets, you go from things being made out of tin and wood to things being made out of steel. Um, and although the knife materials and they could make it a lot of you know inexpensive knives of the um, 17th century would be made out of bronze or iron or something like that which if you take care of it is not necessarily a bad thing uh, I was looking I was at the houseware show in Chicago a week and a half ago and there's a company that's now making and, and it's a high carbon um, knife but it's not a traditional steel, and it's not polished on the outside. It's black. It's rough. It's the way it's been forged, and uh, it was really nice. Hmm. But it would take a, it takes a lot of care. It takes a lot of care. I had an old one from my in-laws. It might have been from 
my father-in-law's mother, and it was a, a full carbon seal. It was not. It was black, and you know it had to be you know sharpened all the time and cleaned all the time, and it it was not a pretty thing to look at. But boy, was it a great night! I don't know. I don't know where it is. I think my son probably has it now. I'm not sure. So let's talk about that, the changes in materials and what became preferable and what, in your opinion, is is the best so, material. Well, you know, there's a big period that really where you, where you see a lot of evidence of it is, is you know, post-Second World War, right after the war, uh, you have companies like Elko, Cutco, get started by American Can. Door-to-door and late-night sales. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they were also they were what I would call the supermarket knives. Right. Remember, you know, William Sonoma and Serlatov, these are rather modern. They didn't exist, they, right. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you wanted a, you know, a commercial-style chef's knife, you had to go to a kitchen supply store. And except they're in the big cities, a lot of those were catalog stores where they, they would order it for you then. But when you went to and you opened up, like my mother's drawers, there were these knives that, uh, you know, were st- what they would call stand. They were made out of a flat piece of metal, the ground on both sides, a true hollow ground knife, sharpened, made out of a stainless steel that wasn't particularly good quality, and uh, they were thrown in the drawer and they weren't very good, but that was what was available. Right. Uh, yeah, like way life is. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it, uh, you know, we have, uh, what really has opened up this market a lot, it has been, like I said, the combination of the you know, the Solotobs and the William Sonomas of the world, uh, which then forced the Macy's and stuff to carry, you know, because anything like Macy's, you know, didn't have the cellar, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Not until the seven, in, late 70s, right? Well, I think it was even closer to the 90s, at least. I, I'm in California. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't have the big Macy's in Herald Square there. And, uh, uh and so those type of knives aren't even, you know, like I said, they're not available, but they become available partly because of, you know, people seeing them used on, you know, PBS. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we're still pre-cooking, you know, channels in those days, other than that. Um, you have the introduction of the Santoku uh, in the 80s, but it becomes popular in the 90s as uh, my theory is women like the Santoku because it's less threatening. And it's lighter weight, and uh, like I have in the, say in the video, you, know, <laughs> you never see anybody. You know, you never see a sl- slasher movie made with a Santoka. Uh, but it it becomes popular. It actually had followed on the the Chinese cleaver became big in the eighties because some chefs were using that. But the Chinese cleaver is a phenomenal knife if you're doing Chinese cooking. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of Western style cooking, the cuts are just different enough where it's more difficult to do with that, and the so the Santoka became the popular. So we're and talking a stainless steel with a high carbon content for yeah, most for the yeah. for the best knives. So that you, we get. You, you take basic iron and you add um, carbon to it, and you get then the high carbon steel, which gives you your your edge and your uh, all your strength properties that you want. Problem is it rusts or corrodes really mm-hmm. easily. So then they start adding chromium to it, which makes now your high carbon stainless steel, which is most of what what people are buying. But there are different, you know, flavors of that, and some of them have better features than others. So, you know, these cheap knives that, uh, uh, you know, you can, when you go to some of the cooking personalities, you know, <laughs> web pages, they can, you know, three for twenty four dollars. Right. Well, hey, it's high carbon stainless steel, but uh, yeah. you know, you may be better off sharpening the license. I guess plate. they're getting a cut. A 
out of it. <laughs> We're going to talk about um, more features of knives and, and specific uses when we come back with Peter Hertzman right after the break. Today's music is by Obesity on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 160 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Hi, we are back on A Taste of the Past. I'm talking with Peter Hertzman about the history of knives for cooking, cooking chef's knives. Um, but Peter, you mentioned um, something earlier in, in passing a discussion that was about how a lot of um, knife use was really um, chopping and there's a different knife that was used for chopping. And, and, and one of your... Um, not pet peeves, but interests, I guess, is the terminology of cutting, especially in old recipes, old cookbooks. Talk well, about that a little bit. Okay, so let's describe, a, see how we can do it for the radio audience, right. a, a chopping knife. Uh, for a lot of people, if they've seen like a mezzaluna, uh, it's a version of, mezzalunas tend to be a two-handed uh, type of thing. These were one-handed knives, but they were designed to use in a bowl or on a board. So you really just yeah. rock it back and forth. No, and, you'd actually you would, you, oh, you would, would chop it. You would chop it. Yeah. You would you would. Uh, it was in you know you think of a pounding type of action. Yeah. Uh, you would do that, and it, what it does is is it does some chopping and some crushing in the way it actually works. Because a lot of them were not all that sharp. Yeah, I have an antique one. That it is a, it's a like six blades. It's or a four round blades. thing, so it's only as big as as a, um, a sandal. I guess a large sandal, and it you just it looks like a like a. Um, a pestle, mm-hmm. almost, but it's got the divided bottom yeah, so and you like just bang on it. That come yeah, out of it. yeah, that was, yeah. My mother had that when I was growing up, and uh, it looks like it could yeah. do some damage rather than chop or, <laughs> or min. It would just, yeah, it would. So, in between 1885 and about 1910, 1915, there's over over 50 patents for these type of, of knives, and there was just a huge assortment and, and variations that had come about. 
In the so, if you look, go back earlier, and you take someone like uh, Eliza Acton or uh, Amelia Simmons, those books, they tend to specify very carefully whether they want something sliced, diced, chopped, or pounded. Because remember, they're still using mortar and pestles for right. a lot of things at that point. When you get up to uh, Fanny Farmer and Mary Lincoln, and, and those books, uh, so Mary Lincoln's what eighteen eighty something, and Fanny Farmer's a little bit later. I'd a lot of times they're still not, you know, they'll say, you know, you're making, you know, stews or something like that. And they'll just say onion. They won't tell you what to do with it. You're supposed to know what to do with it. It's okay. They don't even tell you how much onion. But <laughs> Well, it, it's, but those are things that you should know. Right. Uh, you know, you, there's like biscuit recipes with no flour listed. <laughs> because you should know that you put flour in biscuits. And but one of the things really nice about those books that I really like is they tend to specify endpoints. So nowadays, if someone says, um, you know, you're going to make a dough, they'll say knead for 10 minutes as opposed to knead until it has a particular smoothness or a particular texture or stickiness or whatever. The old days, they gave endpoints, which are, is a much better way of, of learning how to cook and, and then cooking. Right. Because things vary. The uh, If you read something like Perfection Salad, Laura Shapiro, and, and that book points out how, you know, in the 1890s, turn of the 20th century, when you went to the store and you bought flour or you bought eggs or you bought meat, it was different every time. And even I, as uh, when I was uh, in college and we'd buy flour and you'd throw it in a big, we used these, you know, five-gallon mayonnaise jars or something like that to store it. And you go back in a month and it was, your flour was moving around from all the bugs <laughs> and the, the rocks. I mean, sifters were developed for cleaning the flour, not to aerate it. Yeah. And a lot of the the problems we get now with modern recipes is they'll still say to do things like sift when it has no value whatsoever. It's just it's because of we used to have to sift in order to clean the flour. So, uh, the, but these the question. Well, I realize we're getting off the chopping. No, that's knives, quite right? all right. It's, it's interesting material to me. Um, but the chopping knives, uh, because I did post a picture of this, I, I think on our website. But the chopping knives that you um, have, I think you have it in your book, or you just you know, reference on your website. Hmm. It so they how long were these were these popular for from when to when how long were these used approximately so I don't know when they actually started the earliest catalog I found with them is 1895 and it's not because it didn't exist before then since I haven't found a catalogs yet I uh, but I know they existed much later than that because like I said you know when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s my mother had one of those hmm. and she used it. You know, that's how she was trained, and I think you could still buy them at that point. Well, this representation that I'm looking at of them, I don't know when it's from. But that's, I believe, is eighteen, either 1895 or 1897. Well, because a very nice-looking chopping knife only costs three cents. Right. So, <laughs> got to go figure. You know, that was a while back. Um, and, and then from there, you know, knives, obviously. Uh, so, so let me address something that you, you brought up earlier, and that is my pet peeve when ah, you know, yes, cookbook authors and recipe writers say chopped when what they really mean is diced. And the interesting thing for me about that is so I, I queried a whole bunch of, of authors, and I said, you know, first of all, do you, do, you, know, do you use the, you know, do you say chopped onions? And I go, and they, those who said yes, I said, okay, when you say chopped, do you mean for them to chop them or to dice them? And I had the two sort of ranges of answers was one, no, I really mean for them to dice. The problem I get into is my students who are uh, totally know nothing about cooking when they start off, 
when it says chop, that's what they want to do then. They don't want to dice it because they don't understand that they're you know similar. And then I got from some people, I said, they're synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. I said, no, they don't. Not in, in my interpretation, they are not the same. That mm-hmm. When you say chop, if you want someone to chop, they will chop like they're using an axe or something like that. And if you say dice, then they will cut uh, you know, into a series of slices in order to get some sort of a cube shape. Which is what a dice is, and and usually you don't see minced. You occasionally you see it, but my question is always: Do they? Well, how fine a dice do they mean? You know, and do they mean dice, or do they mean mince, or do they mean, as you said, chop? I mean, it is. It's it's a it's a very gray area. Well, then you get into another one of my uh, subjects, which, which is how recipes don't communicate. Mm. And I, I, Go ahead. I have a standard hour long <laughs> presentation oh, on that. So. Never mind. <laughs> But when you look at recipes, they're full of words which are um, imprecise. So when you say, you know, a large pot, how large is large? Mm -hmm. You know, until hot, how hot is hot? Any of that type of, you can think of all those words. And there are a whole series of all these different adjectives that could have lots of meaning. And it's relative to person's own experience. And today, I mean, exactly, you... You have to understand that a lot of people don't, you know, have, a, well, and or in the early days too. But now we have such abilities to be more communicative, to be more descriptive. For somebody who doesn't know really how to cook and they're just beginning, it is it's it's a problem for them. Indeed, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, the early books you understand that they assumed you had a basic knowledge because everybody cooked. Not so. Not so today. And so when you look at, at the history of things like the Boston Cooking School and the Philadelphia Cooking School, New York Cooking School, all those, the they were taking people who really didn't know how to cook a lot of times and trying to introduce them into that. And that was part of you know the problem of how you do that. And it turns out that I think that's done better in verbal and visual means than in... in um, in written words. Okay. Although there are some authors who do. They write very precise head notes and end notes. And it, it is, you know, it is helpful to the person who, you know, is reading them who doesn't really have that knowledge. But rare. Yeah. Rare. Well, then there's a paradox in recipes of if you make it as detailed as you need to do to really explain, you know, like you were doing an experiment and you go through all the precision you need to do it, then it's too complicated for the person on the other end if the recipe is more than a paragraph long, I'm not going to use it, right? <laughs> well, even if it's, you know, it, it can be, a, you know, how to boil an egg, but it is, you know, when it starts off with, you know, open your drawer and take out a pot. <laughs> and unfortunately, some of my students would go, well, it's not in the drawer. How do I start this recipe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you get that paradox and uh, that versus the uh, older style of recipes, which were done as a single paragraph. And just gave you an outline of what you needed and to know. And you had no idea how, what to, how much you could end up with a lot or a little or not know how to cook it. Okay. Well, back to knives. And I, I love the recipe cookbook portion of it, too. But I did promise knives. One thing that surprised me, and that was um, the serrated knife, that it was so late coming on to the, the scene as far as... Um, you know, serration, serration and its use. Well, the earliest patent I've found for a serrated blade is actually for cutting hay in the 1860s. Uh, the, there's a bread knife that you could sort of describe as being serrated that was patented in uh, 1880s, 1890s. That's the oldest actually culinary knife I've found for that. 
there are not uh, many patents for actual serrations because there's so many different types of serrations and people mm. sort of you know design the machinery to do it nowadays. The significance of the serrated knife is more that when somebody picks up a serrated knife, they're more likely to actually slice with it, whereas when they pick up a straight-bladed knife, they're more likely to chop with it because mm-hmm. that's just how they learned. And, and even when they've you know, been watching the, the folks on the Food Network and all they're doing is rocking it up and down, they're still pushing it through the food, which is technically chopping. So it's sort of a subtle thing. There was a uh, common in that same um, either Montgomery Ward or Sears catalog that your chopping knife picture comes out of. There was cake knives, which had sort of a wavy blade to it. Uh, there was um, the name of the company I'm blanking on right now, but they were interesting. They had sort of a the handle was a piece of wire that was bent sort of as the outline, and that was what you held this knife with. And they made a number of things. The 1856, it's called the American Cookbook, uh, it's an anonymous cookbook, has illustrations of a lot of different types of knives, and they have a knife in there they call a French saw. And I have, you know, I've never seen one, I have no idea whether it it's a It has to be a serrated knife, though, right? I mean, why would they call it, because why would they call it, it a saw? It may be more like a saw also, because they have yeah. butcher knives and they have other things in there also. Well, you know, I was, it, again, in, in reading about, um, uh, in reading some of your essays on uh, on knives and, and the history. And then thinking about this, of course, this new craze of everybody loving these um, very fine and also very, very expensive Japanese knives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Japanese really, I mean, they came to it from sword making. Mm-hmm. Did they not? Yeah, I mean, they were master sword makers. So it stands to reason they would make these very fine, thin-bladed well, when you outlaw the samurai, you have to make something else. But what do you know anything about the um, uh, when the Portuguese introduced tobacco to to Japan, and then uh, knives being made to cut tobacco? You said something about the serrated knife being introduced for for cutting wheat for hay for hay. Yeah. Um, and, and I had read something about uh, Japan introducing knives to cut tobacco that was introduced to them. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, I, I just wondered, I threw that out, wondering if you'd heard that before. Yeah, you know, basic, so in basic knife technology in Japan, you have four knives at the turn of the 20th century uh, that are that be, make up the traditional knife set. They're the traditional, you know, what we think of as a single-sided edge or single, uh, the bevel is on one side. They're made either from a solid piece of steel or from iron, where you forge well the steel edge to it. They're thick, with uh, but they actually have the actual cutting angle. The, the bevel itself is actually much finer than a, a Western-style knife. Uh, but there's a lot of metal uh, behind that. And they're used different, and they, they're for specific things. So they have two what they call debas, which were for different aspects on fish. Matter of fact, most of them were for fish. Uh, you have the usuba, which is the vegetable knife, and then you have some sort of yanagi and so all the variations of yanagi, which is your filleting knife that you use for, you know, um, fish fillets like sushi. The problem is you only have four knives in that basic set, and one of the Japanese words for four, which is pronounced as she, is also the word for death. Yeah. So you get the fifth knife, the Santoku, coming in 1903-1904 era, which was the first double where they're beveling on, on both sides of, of the, the knife. The beveled edge, right. And, um, but it's really, it's, it look, when you look at the older ones, it's more of a, it's shaped 
more like a Yusuba in some ways. Uh, it doesn't. It has a you know the edge comes down to front, and it has now a slight curve to it. Mm. In in the modern Japanese knives, there's the Santoku and uh, Gyota, which I've been told translates literally a cow sword or is a butcher knife. Mm. That's when you when you go and you buy a, a Japanese knife nowadays. That's the shape that you're getting is that. And if you look at that, it's a um, especially towards the heels, much straighter than the German uh, style knives are. Mm-hmm. With a smaller hand, well, that brings me to handles because the hand that if it's much straighter up, then the handle seems smaller. No, it it varies, mm-hmm. and uh, this it's interesting how I, I I happen to like the the handle of the Jap- traditional Japanese knife on a Western style blade can be very comfortable. Mm. Uh, if you're holding it in what I you know call a pinch grip, which is, I believe, the proper way to hold a knife. And that yeah. is, for listeners who aren't aware that, you're actually hold, pinching the the end of the blade, the end nearest the handle, the blade, right. not the handle, the blade. Right. Yes. And it gives you the most control. Now, I learned it from that from Martin Yan, you know, who was doing with a cleaver. So it's... Anyone who's taken any cooking classes, the first thing they do is have a little quick course in knife skills usually. So hopefully they, they've learned that before they start touching these sharp, sword, sharp swords, sharp <laughs> knives, right? And, of course, sharpening is another thing, and that is um, you know, people try to sharpen knives themselves. And unless they really know what they're doing or you know, uh, watched a video or <laughs> taken Not courses. Not mine. <laughs> it's tough. No, you don't do a sharpening in that. Um, but they, that's, you know, I, I still send my knives out occasionally to yeah. be sharpened because it's, I, I can't get the right angle on it you know, consistently. Okay, there's a couple aspects of sharpening. Uh, one is that sharpening, or how sharp a knife is, is a matter of perception. So it's not something independent of the user. It's how you use your knife is going to depend. And you may find, you know, the knife that you find sharp, I may find dull because mm-hmm. I'm slicing, you're chopping, or, or something like that. So that that's part of it. Uh, another part of it is how you take that knife from the day you get it and how you treat it. You know, or do you keep it the edge protected, or are you you know thrown in the dishwasher, you know thrown against other metal objects? Are you taking a knife that's not designed to be cutting on bones and cutting bones with it, which is the issue with a lot of the the high end Japanese knives are not designed for hard objects. They're great for vegetables, but they're not really good for you know taking apart you know a chicken or something like that. And you see all these reviews on Amazon where, you know, I had this knife, you know, I bought the chef's knife and I spent $200 on it. And after a week, it's totally destroyed because I cut up a chicken. And the um, manufacturer would say, you know, read the blank manual. The warning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because the manual says not to do that. Oh, interesting. Well, there are so many knives out there on the market. But as you said, if you need, you really, you know, I think everyone does find that in their own kitchen that, there's usually one knife that you always go to, whether it's it's the right knife or not for what you're you know the for what you're cooking or chopping or slicing. <laughs> it's what we're comfortable with. And it's why are you buying the knife? I mean, why does someone spend eight thousand dollars on a set of three knives right. that comes on a very nice wood holder that's designed to sit on the counter? Well, chances are the person who buys that knife also has a, you know a number of very expensive cars in their driveway and <laughs> lives in a large house. And Austin Station Niche is an important part of that. I did a paper last year at Oxford on kitchen knives as the new bling. Hmm, interesting. And it turns out that there are a lot of knives that are bought just for that purpose. When you, when you talk to the 
the manufacturers as well as some of the sellers. And they said, yeah, you know, we get, and it's not just amateurs. We're talking about chefs who will come in and buy a knife not to use but to, you know, to, to own. own. <laughs> right. yeah, well, they're beautiful. That. They are beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. they are works of art. And, uh, and, and a word to uh, the wise or to become wise and treat them carefully, right? And do not put them in the dishwasher. Watch and the video. That's right. <laughs> Watch the video. We will actually. If you go to Peter's uh, website, it's Hertzman, and that's with two N's. dot com, and it's a fantastic and very informative video. Uh, and I, I enjoyed. And there's that. a lot of and other stuff lot, on the website. A lot also. of other stuff on yeah. the website. You can see lots of videos. But we're talking knives today, yeah. and so about the <laughs> knives, it's there, and it will tell you everything you need to know about knives. Mm-hmm. Knives are interesting. They have such a, a recent history in the kitchen, and that surprised me, and that's why I wanted to invite you to talk about that, and actually well, you approached me because you were going to be in town, and um, I, I urge people to go to the video and, and enjoy their knives and have fun cooking. Yes. Thanks, Peter. This My has pleasure. been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.